Commission meeting of Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Thank you to Vice President Lori Green for chairing the meeting in my absence last time as I was traveling. Uh, Secretary Morowitz, would you please call the roll? Sure. Uh, Commissioner Christian. Present. Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Bernal. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. And Commissioner Green. Present. All right, it is now my privilege to read the Ramitushaloni land acknowledgement. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramitush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramitush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramitushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Our next item is the approval of the minutes from the Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, June 6, 2023. Commissioners, you have the minutes before you and have reviewed them. If there are no amendments, do we have a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Do we have any public comment? Folks on the line, we're on item two, the uh, minutes. Please let us know if you'd like to make comment by pressing star three. We'll give it a second. All right, there are no, um, no hands. All right, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? The minutes are approved. Our next item is one that um, I bring with mixed feelings. It's a resolution honoring Dr. Ayanna Bennett, who has served as our uh, Director of Health Equity, as well as a number of other positions within the department over many years. Um, I would ask Secretary Morowitz to please read the resolution before we have a mo uh, motion and second. And sir, uh, uh, Director Colfax is gonna introduce it before I read oh, it. Oh, well, gosh. Thank so, you, thank President you, Bernal, Colfax. and thank you, Health Commissioner Grant Colfax, Director of Health. And uh, I share um, your um, uh, feelings as well, Commissioner yeah. Bernal, and this is a, um, a time to celebrate Dr. Bennett's leadership in the department and to congratulate her on moving across the country to become Director of Health um, of Washington, D.C., and just so incredibly excited um, for, 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 for her and for Washington for, and for, for the District of Columbia. And uh, just to celebrate uh, Dr. Bennett's uh, work and leadership at the department, and I, there's the whole resolution, so I'll just be brief, but I think the three, three things that really, the words that jumped out at me in terms of her leadership is bringing a structure and intentionality and a rigor um, to the work that we do in health equity as director of the Office of Health Equity and holding us and in particular leadership and, and, and executives accountable for actions um, in order to move equity forward and really want to thank her for that, want to thank uh, her for building a team that will ensure that her work um, will continue at the department and looking forward um, to seeing what comes next and uh, excited that she will uh, join uh, directors of public health departments across the country. So uh, with that, I will turn it over to the, to the resolution with Dr. Bennett. Uh, congratulations and thank you for all you've done. 
All right, I will read the draft uh, before me. Honoring Ayanna Bennett. Whereas Dr. Ayanna Bennett has served the city and county of San Francisco as an exceptional leader at the Department of Public Health since 2004 and making, uh, making tremendous contributions to the department's efforts to address health disparities and issues of racial equity. And whereas Dr. Bennett has held several DPH positions, including Southeast Health Center as needed physician, interim medical director of community health programs for youth, director of interdivisional initiatives, and most recently as the chief health equity officer. And whereas Dr. Bennett oversaw the awesome task of developing the DPH racial equity action plan, monitoring mechanisms and coordinating the complex implementation of the plan throughout the multi-billion dollar department. And whereas through her work, developing and overseeing the Office of Health Equity. Dr. Bennett created an infrastructure that makes equity part of each DPH employee's daily work. Every new employee is oriented to equity as a central part of the DPH work and throughout the department. There are dedicated equity staff and health equity plans of action. And whereas Dr. Bennett convened the DPH executive staff every other month for many years as the equity governing council to discuss approaches to improving equity across the DPH. And whereas Dr. Bennett was the longest serving COVID-19 incident commander, shepherding the city's response at a time during the pandemic in which the outcome was uncertain. She expertly inhabited this important leadership role while balancing the needs of her family. And whereas Dr. Bennett is known for her innovation, creativity, and always being willing to volunteer to address the many complex health equity related issues at the DPH. And whereas Dr. Bennett leaves a legacy of service and leadership to support and improve the lives of all San Franciscans, she will be dearly missed by many at the DPH and in the greater San Francisco public health communities. Resolved that the San Francisco Health Commission honors Dr. Ayanna Bennett for her outstanding service and leadership and wishes her well in her new position as the Washington DC Director of Health. Uh, do we have a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Okay, do we have any public comment either from within the chamber or on the phone line? Any in the chamber? Folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment, please press star three. We're on item three. No, oh, you, well, you will, after the vote, you will, you will be called up, Dr. Bennett. You have to hear from us first. <laughs> no, uh, there are no raised hands for public comment. All right. Uh, commissioners, any comments or questions? Commissioner Christian. Thank you, President Bernal. Dr. Bennett, I am so sorry to see you go. I didn't have a chance to really um, benefit from you know all of your leadership and knowledge and the way uh, that uh, I would have if I had uh, been here a little longer but I thank you so much for what you have done for all of us uh, on the commission but also for what you've done for uh, those of us who live in the city as well as who, people who come in uh, day in and day out to work here it is um, I think leadership is uh, your leadership has been stunning I mean your effectiveness the, the grace with which you have uh, created this, uh, the racial equity plan and the office of health equity uh, is just um, admirable. So I you know, wanna thank you for that and wish you the best of luck in DC. I know that um, you're gonna succeed there probably um, uh, lifting yourself higher than you uh, were able to do here because it seems like you're that type of person who just kind of really moves on and creates amazing things and raises her level everywhere she goes. So thank you so much. Um, look forward to seeing what you do in DC. Thank you, Commissioner Christian. Commissioner Guillermo. 
Thank you, President Bernal. Um, I too want to add my congratulations uh, to Dr. Bennett, uh, as well as my, my gratitude for all that you've done for San Francisco. Uh, your, your leadership throughout the years, but especially in these last five years uh, that I've been uh, fortunate enough to, to witness uh, building infrastructure, uh, commanding uh, 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 teams uh, during the epidemic with diplomacy, with elegance, with the dedication I think that is unmatched. That helps to build the reputation of San Francisco uh, such that it is uh, uh, in uh, public health leadership. So thank you, and I look forward to hearing more about you uh, and your leadership and all of the great things that you're going to be doing for that city that really needs your type of leadership. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing. I have a lot of friends in the D.C. area and within D.C. itself, uh, and I'm looking forward to being able to tout all of our, your accomplishments here and the fact that I knew you when. <laughs> so uh, congratulations again and thank you all uh, thank you so much your legacy will not be forgotten here in san francisco commissioner green well i would echo everything everyone has said we are going to miss you so much i just love to hear you present and you know as i thought about it you've been our north star in so many ways especially in health equity and of course during your COVID work because you know, it's, it, in the health equity area, it's one thing to orient and train, and it's another thing to transform culture, to make the insights and understanding that we need to have to function better really, um, uh, really actualizable. And you've been so collegial, you are so approachable, and I think you've taken areas that sometimes are hard to understand and, and really inspired. And I know you'll continue to do that in Washington. And um, like uh, Commissioner Guillermo just said, we'd, we'd love to say we knew you when, because the, your, your future impact and the career I'm sure you're going to have will, will be stellar. And we'll be very proud to hope that you will say that you cut your teeth here in San Francisco. <laughs> yes, I, I join my fellow commissioners in congratulating uh, Dr. Bennett for um, her work that she has done in and I uh, only wanted to emphasize in addition to everything that they have all said that I believe that you've laid for us a uh, amazing foundation for health equity that not only were we then looking for health, for equity <coughs> within our pop, uh, our employee population but that you uh, were uh, willing to uh, then expand that to be really a health equity for the city. And I think that is going to be a lasting legacy that um, whoever follows in your tremendously large footsteps will have to carry out. Uh, you've uh, laid a uh, tremendous foundation for this. And, and I would look forward to also the work that you're going to be doing in D.C. D.C. is extremely lucky. I think the type of expertise that you bring to any city uh, certainly would be one that the district uh, will uh, appreciate and will benefit from. So congratulations. And uh, don't forget us. Let us know <laughs> what you're doing. And uh, we uh, look forward to great, uh, even greater things uh, as we read what you are going to be doing, Dr. Bennett. Thank you so much. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. I'd like to associate myself with the words of all of my fellow commissioners. Um, 
Director Colfax had talked about your leadership and bringing structure and integrity and rigor to our work, but just touching on something that Vice President Green said, one of, I think, the most critical and challenging parts of uh, our health equity work is uh, culture change. And you have done so much to change the culture, both within the department and for us here on the commission. Um, to ensure equity in our work both inside uh, the department and also in protecting and enhancing the health for all of the San Franciscans that we serve. You've really helped, I think, all of us normalize conversations around race and other equity issues, and it's really been a privilege to uh, both have you here at the commission to present to us and also to learn from you uh, over the course of, uh, I'll speak for myself, my time here. So thank you, Dr. Bennett, so much for your leadership. We're going to miss you a lot, and we're <laughs> going to expect to hear from you as well. Um, and I guess we will remove the suspense and go to a vote before we invite Dr. Bennett to come up <laughs> and speak. Uh, all those in favor of the resolution honoring Dr. Ayanna Bennett, please say aye. 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 We have no opposed. Dr. Bennett, would you like to come up to the podium? many San Francisco things that are going to have to go up on the wall, and <laughs> this is one of them. Uh, I really appreciated all of the time I've spent with you. I um, actually like those presentations. That's why you can, you can tell, because I kind of like them. Um, I like being tested. I like it when we get to the point and say, did anything happen? I am really looking forward, and I trust in you to keep people going, that it's not okay to just talk about it. We should have something to say about what's happened, and there should be something that happened between one point and the next. I, am, um, I have deep faith that the department can do that. I have uh, been telling people I've started to see things that I had nothing to do with in the last year or so. I'm like, I didn't talk to them. I didn't tell them to do that. I don't know anything about it. And that is, that is really a joy, actually, to see that people are, they've just um, started to own it, that it's not a project, it's not a side thing that it's not everybody, but there are people who are really demonstrating in this department that this is how you do the work. And I think your questions and the way in which you've um, held this as a priority helps to keep them doing that. And it helps to spread that to the people who quite aren't, aren't quite on board because culture change happens in phases, right? So we have to get those middle folks. I wanna thank you, um, Dr. Colfax, for giving me this position and elevating it to a level that it, it is not everywhere. I have many colleagues that I know who are doing the same work and some of them are in the HR department. Some of them are, you know, they're all over the place. They're not necessarily uh, at the level that I'm at and they're not necessarily given the wide breadth of, of influence that I've been given. I'm in everybody's business. I try, <laughs> I try to write down, <laughs> who do I work with? And I'm like, am I on that? I decided, bonus, yeah, I decided I'm, I was in a lot of things. Um, but I think that's how you have to do it because we are doing things we shouldn't or not doing things we should everywhere. And so that idea that we are not just running the bus, but we're actually supposed to be improving things, I think is a real ethos of this commission. And I'm, I want it to be the ethos of the department. I think, it, I think we're getting there. So I wanna thank all these folks who came out here, even though they could just be on television watching. <laughs> um, not all of them were here for me. But uh, I really appreciate how much I've learned here, how much I've grown. And I think I, I did that growth because I was allowed to take risks and was in fact invited to. So thank you very much.
Thank you, Dr. Bennett. Okay. Our next item on the agenda is general public comment. Secretary Morowitz will read a statement and then invite comment from the public. Sure. Um, at this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, the word health dot the word commission dot dph.org. At S, uh, right. If you uh, wish to spell your name in the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that the city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees um, and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We oh, will then Dr. take- Dr. Bennett, would you hold on for one second? And go, sorry. Oh. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, and, and I'm sorry for the interruption, Secretary Morowitz. As you are assessing the number of people who are on the line to give public comment, I'd like to invite the commissioners to stand up and do a photo with Dr. Bennett before she leaves. Oh, yeah, that's great. So sure. would you like to finish the instructions and then as you're... Well, why don't y'all go ahead while I continue reading the instructions. And apologies to members of the public for public comment. Come on, we're going to do a quick photo. All right, uh, we will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. I've given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during their, their, this time. I've given two people uh, uh, a code for today's meeting. Finally, we will hear remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each time uh, each item from individuals who have not received an accommodation or disability. So we'll take a pause while the commissioners are doing their uh, photo op, but uh, please raise your hand if you'd like to make general public comment. I didn't do anything. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. It's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. No, don't worry, Dr. Childs. Okay. Um, so there are no raised hands for general public comment, y'all, but um, back when you get back to your seat. We're ready for the next item, which will be. All right. Our next item on the agenda, then, is the director's report. For this, we have Director of Health, Dr. Grant Colfax. Dr. Col director Colfax. Good afternoon. Thank you, President Bernal. Few items on the director's report. I'll just um, quickly do an overview. But I think that the first item uh, important to highlight that the Department of Public Health celebrates San Francisco Pride. 
this year's San Francisco Pride celebrants, celebrants are, quote, looking back and moving forward. And at DPH, we have a proud history of serving the LGBTQIA community. As you know, our department has been a leader in providing equitable, accessible, comprehensive, and if I may say groundbreaking, <laughs> healthcare to underserved and marginalized LBTQIA plus uh, people. And you will see some details in uh, the, the written item. Just excited that we will, um, DPH will have a parade contingent at the Trans March on Friday, June 23rd, and at the Pride Parade on Sunday, June 25th. And we are encouraging all staff to participate. And another item I'd like to call the commission's attention to in the written report is um, under the item, second item, SFEMS awardees recognized for excellence in emergency medical services. Um, you will see um, in the awards that were uh, presented to EMS, uh, one of the recipients was our um, uh, DPH's own Curtis Gear, uh, who is, is at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and was commended for ensuring that Dr. Gear was commended for ensuring EMS initiatives, protocols, and medications are accurate and evidence-based and for developing protocol changes related to medic medication shortages and formula formulary uh, changes. And you can see under that list there are a number of other uh, key uh, supporters of EMS that were um, honored as well. And I think that will conclude my uh, brief uh, summary of the director's report and happy to answer uh, any questions that the commissioners may have. Thank you. Thank you, Director Colfax. Do you have any public comment? Uh, so, commissioners, I just got an email from a member of the public saying that uh, he, uh, Mr. Manetchal, that he raised his hand and it's not showing up. So I'm going to manually just, um, I don't see any hands, but I'm going to, we'll go through them one by one just to make sure that there's no one there. And then um, if you, after this item, if you wouldn't mind going back and we'll do public comment that we miss um, since it, some, something's going on with the system. Okay, caller, do you have public uh, comment on this item? Caller, are you there? I know it's a little awkward, but I'd rather uh, double check than not have it. Hi, caller, I've just unmuted you. Please let us know that you're there. Okay, we'll try again. Another caller. Caller, are you there? I'm not sure why it's not coming through. Uh, and then finally, last one. Mr. Urban, do you have public comment on this item? Okay, I will work on this while you all um, you all can uh, ask questions of the director. Thank you, Secretary Moritz. Any questions for Director Colfax? Um, I do have one. Perhaps this might be a question for for Dr. Philip. Um, we received an update not too uh, about a month or so ago about the plans for outreach around Pride Month festivities, um, including uh, what we might advise folks in the community in terms of MPOX vaccinations and other things. I wonder if we could get a quick recap of the activities and what's planned for the actual events of this weekend. Yes, absolutely, President Bernal. And good afternoon, commissioners. I'm happy to give that update. So uh, over the past month, there has been uh, have been communications that have gone out. There's been partnerships with some of our community partners as well to amplify the message. And the message is really, if you haven't received, if a person hasn't received two doses of their MPOX vaccine, 
it's, it's a great time now to get it. And we had a community event um, with uh, SOMA in uh, May. We had another one on June 10th. And we know that there are events throughout the summer. So even if people haven't gotten their second dose yet or a first dose, we encourage them to, to do that uh, now. So it's not too late, but we've been doing um, some outreach and some uh, events, and we will continue that throughout the, the season, the fun season of the summer and all the festivities that will be happening. If people have gotten both of their vaccines last year, there's no indication and, or recommendation now from CDC or from us to, to get additional doses. So two doses is sufficient. Great, thank you, Dr. Phillip. Any other questions or comments from commissioners? Um, Commissioner Chow. Yes, uh, I actually wanted to follow up on Dr. Phillips' comment uh, in terms of a report from uh, this morning's paper that in Chicago there was an outbreak, including people who had had the vaccine. So what are we expecting the vaccine to be doing? Do they, does it ameliorate the disorder or uh, so that people don't get frightened or think they should get a booster or anything? Yes, ab absolutely. So that's a, that's a great question. And, and what you said is exactly right, Commissioner Chow. Uh, the vaccine is not 100% effective in preventing um, all uh, transmission of MPOX, but it, it does uh, decrease the risk. And on a population level, that's really what we want to prevent outbreaks. And in fact, there has been a recent CDC uh, MMWR uh, uh, journal evaluation that has uh, said that along with New York City, San Francisco in their modeling is the least likely jurisdiction to see another large outbreak this summer. We hope that's correct, but that is based on the uh, percentage of people who have received vaccines so far who, who might be at, at um, increased risk for, for MPOX. So that's, that's good news. But we are continuing to, to encourage people, as we just talked about, to, to get both doses of vaccine. Well, we have seen if people who are vaccinated, if they do develop uh, MPOX lesions, they are much less severe, as you said. They are um, not uh, the, the really debilitating, very severe um, symptoms that we were very worried about and that prompted our public health emergency last summer. So it is, it is good news that the receipt of the vaccine does decrease uh, the severity of the symptoms, which is great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And just one last comment. I was among the many people who waited in line very early in the morning uh, last year when our state of emergency was declared. And I know that there are a lot of challenges around supply from the federal government, but I just wanted to commend again uh, the population health and San Francisco general staff who were so kind and professional and supportive of people who were showing up to get their shots, to help uh, really help people understand what the needs were and all the outreach was done. It was really an excellent um, and needed operation. So thank you very much, Dr. Phillip. Thank you very much, President Bernal. And I am going to have the privilege of talking a little bit about that uh, in my presentation a little Great. bit later this meeting. So I'll have Great. the chance to talk about it. Thank you. Great, thank you. All right, we can move on to our next item then, which is the Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center closure plan and CMS recertification update. Welcome uh, Roland Pickens, who is the acting LHH CEO. Hello, Mr. Pickens. Good afternoon, Commissioner. Uh, thank you for having me this afternoon. It's my pleasure to provide you with this update on Laguna Honda and our recertification process. Uh, next slide. So I am very pleased to um, share with the full commission uh, information we shared with the joint conference committee last week 
uh, that we are announcing um, the selection of Ms. Sandra Simon as the nursing home administrator and chief executive officer for Laguna Honda. Um, she will start officially as the city hire on this coming Monday, June 26. And um, she brings a wealth of experience uh, in long-term care and skilled nursing uh, facility leadership. Uh, she is not a stranger to San Francisco. She was previously the chief administrative officer at the Jewish home for several years here in San Francisco, which is, as you know, the second largest skilled nursing facility in the city. Uh, so um, she um, will bring with her uh, her vast knowledge and expertise and to really augment all of the work that's being done at Laguna Honda. Uh, she will hit the ground running. Um, she'll spend that first month uh, doing a lot of uh, meet and greets uh, and also a lot of onboarding all of the various required education and training specific to Laguna Honda. Uh, several hours of both uh, uh, in-person and online educational modules. And she and I will be doing a very um, methodical and planned uh, handoff uh, and onboarding uh, as I begin to uh, transition out of that role and then turn over the reins to her. But again, we're excited and just know she's going to do a great job uh, at Laguna, uh, the way that she's done uh, every every other place that she's worked. Next slide. Uh, additional updates in terms of uh, key positions at Laguna. Uh, we are also recruiting for um, the director of nursing, uh, medical director, two assistant nursing home administrators, and an executive director of facilities and engineering and an emergency management. Uh, and preparedness director. Um, we're pleased to announce that the um, director of facilities and engineering life safety uh, has been filled by Mr. Greg Chase. Greg actually has been in that position, a, a similar position on an interim basis for the last several months at Laguna. Uh, he was previously a, the chief engineer at uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General. And you'll recall in one of the earlier surveys, there were issues with fire life safety at Laguna. And so Greg came over then and has been there on site since. Uh, he went through a very competitive process uh, with, uh, uh, that had several qualified applicants, uh, but he was selected as uh, the most qualified for the job and has started. For the roles of assistant nursing home administrator, you remember we have two of those roles. One is the assistant nursing home administrator for care experience in terms of the grievance process, um, um, the um, chaplaincy um, program, our uh, equity work, uh, all of those more softer skills that are really needed to um, particularly wor work on the organizational change management that needs to occur at Laguna Honda. Uh, that position, and then also the second one is the assistant nursing home administrator for support services, so uh, environmental services, uh, food services, uh, clinical nutrition, um, and um, and um, uh, industrial hygiene. Um, so um, offers have been uh, extended and accepted by the uh, top-ranked candidates for those jobs. And as soon as those were conditional offers, as soon as the final offer is accepted, final offers require 
um, completion of background checks, fingerprinting, and all of that. Once that happens, then we'll be able to announce who those individuals are. Um, and we expect that uh, to happen any day now. So we should be uh, able to share with you who those individuals are in short order. And then finally, for the roles of emergency management and disaster preparedness, Director of Nursing and Medical Director, Director will continue with the search and recruitment process utilizing the search firm. In fact, we have round two Director of Nursing interviews um, tomorrow and Thursday. So uh, ex uh, we are confident we'll be able to uh, select an individual appropriate and we'll uh, then put that person through uh, a, a final round and vetting process through the city. So again, we're making progress in terms of filling the long-term leadership team uh, at Laguna. Uh, and as I shared with the joint conference last, joint conference committee last week, uh, even as these new leaders are coming on board, the recertification team uh, that's been on the ground for the last year, uh, which actually I was a part of prior to stepping in as the interim CEO, we will all still remain at Laguna. Uh, for, the seeable, for the foreseeable future to support the new leadership team and to help get the institution through recertification. Next slide. Okay, next slide. Okay. So you'll recall uh, we're here because last April, um, CMS terminated Laguna Honda's participation in the CMS program. Uh, as you are very well aware, we have continued to work hard, both with our staff and many expert consultants we brought in to make all of the required regulatory uh, improvements uh, to prepare us for recertification. Uh, between our own staff and the expert consultants, we're confident we have the right team in place uh, to be successful uh, in our recertification efforts, and particularly as these new leaders are coming on board. Next slide. You recall that in November of last year, uh, the city signed a settlement agreement with CMS. Uh, that agreement, as you recall, uh, put a pause on any transfers of Laguna residents to other skilled nursing facilities and also um, allowed for the continued payment of reimbursement uh, even while Laguna is um, in this state of decertification. Uh, you will also recall that um, on um, March 19th of this year, CMS extended that pause in transfers and also um, actually in, in, in um, May of this year, CMS extended that pause um, through at least September 19th and also extended the payments through at least March 24th in the event that Laguna were not recertified before that date. Relating to uh, that pause in uh, transfers to other facilities, um, you sh uh, should remember that as I previously reported back in March of this year, uh, CMS uh, directed us to proceed with discharge of residents who no longer had skilled nursing needs. And so that's different from transferring residents who have skilled nursing needs to other facilities, which is what uh, happened uh, last year and then was paused. 
So to that end, uh, at the beginning of April, we uh, reinitiated that process. There were about 40, there were 42 Laguna Honda residents at the time in early April who uh, met the criteria as no longer needing skilled nursing level of care. Uh, since uh, early April uh, through last week, there have been a total of six discharges of Laguna Honda residents who no longer need skilled nursing care. Of those six uh, residents, one resident was able to be discharged back to their home, and five residents were discharged to uh, board and care facilities, also known as RCFs, Residential Care for the Residential Care Facility, or RCFE, Residential Care Facility for the Elderly, anyone who's 65 or older. Uh, in addition, um, in a, uh, an additional three Laguna Honda residents uh, who upon having their um, assessments done of their level of care, who had previously been identified as skilled nursing, have now reached a level of no longer needing skilled nursing care. So that brings our current total to 39 residents who no longer require skilled nursing care as of today. And so as a reminder, you recall that we are constantly reassessing residents' level of care. We're required to, uh, under the terms of the settlement agreement, do that reassessment at a minimum of once every 90 days. So this is a number that will probably tend to flex up and down, not severely, but as an individual's uh, care needs change. That's why we saw three additional people move into this cohort uh, over, the, over the last month. Next slide. Consistent care at the bedside. So despite uh, much of the progress and um, improvement work uh, that's been done at Laguna over the last year, uh, it became obvious to us particularly um, during, uh, at the end of our last 90-day monitoring survey uh, that we needed to have uh, additional focus to really um, try and um, make movement on some improvements that uh, had still yet to be realized. And so to, the, to that extent, extent um, we developed uh, an initiative called Consistent Care at the Bedside Monitors, CCBMs. So these are expert consultants uh, that are coming on board through our health services advisory group uh, contract. Those are, are the consultants who've been with us for the last year. You'll recall they are one of the approved quality improvement experts that CMS contracts with around the country. So essentially, they are bringing on uh, a CCBM, a consistent care at the bedside monitor, for each of our 13 nursing units. So you can think of it as each nursing unit essentially having like a director of nursing level individual who's embedded within that unit, working uh, at the elbow with the nurse manager of that unit and then all of the staff assigned across all three shifts. And then we're then working with the nursing directors who typically have two or three of those units assigned to them. So the purpose is to um, bring in these highly seasoned and skilled uh, um, director of nursing individuals. And in fact, I got to meet them shortly before coming over today. So they are on site. They are a 
group of, and they were able to share their expertise in history. Most of them uh, have been directors of nursing at skilled nursing facilities for 10, 20 years, uh, steeped in staff education training and particularly regulatory compliance. Uh, we piloted this program about three weeks ago uh, and have seen tremendous um, improvements and, um, and, and payoff from having this level of expertise uh, at the bedside, working with our staff to, um, uh, to, to better uh, implement uh, the training and education they've received, and to also work with our leadership uh, to help model for them how to ensure accountability uh, for staff uh, at the bedside. Uh, this initiative uh, will last at least through December of this year uh, and uh, as we uh, continue to try to make sure we're making lasting changes in the culture at Laguna Honda. Next slide. So you recall that uh, the settlement agreement calls for 90-day uh, monitoring surveys by CMS uh, every 90 days. We had our most recent and third CMS 90-day monitoring survey uh, the week of June 5th through the 9th. Uh, as I reported to the joint conference last week, uh, the preliminary findings from that survey were uh, that there were 40, 40 uh, regulatory findings. And when you compare that with the first monitoring survey, which is the one we should be comparing it to, because this third survey was what they call a full scope survey. This is looking at all the CMS regulations. The first survey we had in December was a full survey. You recall we had, I believe, 120 to 140 findings during that survey. So when you can contrast that to the most recent survey, going from 100 20 to 40 down to 40. We see that as uh, additional uh, validation that improvements are being made at Laguna and we're on the, on the right track. And you recall we had the second survey uh, back in March. That was not a full survey. That's what they call an abbreviated survey where they did not look at all the CMS regs. They only looked at a certain portion. And during that one, there were 20 some odd uh, findings. So again, we see this uh, in addition to uh, all of the work we've done on the root cause analysis uh, that, again, we are providing uh, definitive proof and documentation to CMS of Laguna Honda's um, um, efforts toward recertification and progress meeting regulatory compliance. Next slide. So happy to report uh, the uh, root cause analysis, the action plan uh, that was developed by the QIE uh, ended up uh, having a total of 520 milestones. You recall the original root cause analysis action plan actually had 320 milestones. But as we had each of those successive 90-day monitoring surveys, whenever there were findings, there would be um, subsequent additional root cause analyses and subsequent milestones that were then added. So we went from 320 up to, up to 500, uh, all of which needed to be completed by uh, May. And uh, as you recall, we were 100% successful every month 
completing successively, completing and then having the CMS quality improvement expert validate that we'd made those changes and completed all of those milestones. And remember, those milestones were developed uh, to address each of the 11 categories that were identified in the root cause analysis as being areas that contributed to the uh, state of affairs that led to the original uh, Laguna Honda decertification. And so, uh, as we've been saying for the last several months, now that we have the third monitoring survey under our belts, we feel that we are in a much stronger position uh, to, to, to determine um, uh, when we'll be able to uh, submit for recertification. Having said that, um, we uh, are still waiting on the formal findings from that third survey. Remember, we only got the preliminary verbal findings. We must receive a written document. Uh, CMS rules state that they are supposed to give us that document within 10 business days. Um, and we are hoping we will get it. Um, that was not the experience with the first survey nor the second survey. We did not receive that report within 10 days. And then upon receipt, we then must work with the CMS quality improvement expert to review those findings. The quality improvement expert will do uh, an amended root cause analysis and work with us to develop milestones related to the deficiencies those 40 or so deficiencies or whatever ends up in the formal written report from this last survey. So once that process happens, um, we think we'll, we'll then be able to know, are we on track uh, and in, in what date do we think, can we hone in on when we are ready to submit for recertification? We have said the last several months, our goal is to submit this summer. We are confident that is still gonna be the case. The actual date this summer, again, we've still, we've got to get the results from this last survey in order to really pin that down uh, because it's going to depend upon um, uh, how the state, for those findings, how did they uh, score those findings? How many are A, B, C, D, E levels? So that detail we won't have until we get the hard copy. But I wanted to share with you, you know, some of the thinking about uh, how we're going to be getting close to making that decision on resubmission, submission of our application for the final survey. Next slide. And uh, again, this is a um, pictorial of our timeline that talks about uh, all the survey readiness activities we've done over the last year, of the action plan that came into play in January with the root cause analysis and our recertification process, which you see at the bottom, again, shows our um, time frame of this summer for actually submitting the application uh, for the recertification survey. Uh, next slide. And so that concludes um, uh, my presentation and uh, we'll be happy to uh, take any questions or comments at the appropriate time. Thank you, Mr. Pickens. Do you have any public comment? Sure, and I just want to note that um, some folks had trouble getting uh, in and raising their hands, but SFGov TV and I both called using several phones and it worked fine. So if you're having trouble raising your hand, please hang up and call back because the system's working. I see two hands. Um, I gave two folks accommodation. So if you haven't received an accommodation personally from me, please lower your hand because we'll start with those folks. 
first, and Jaime, please um, unmute the first person. Hi, um, you're unmuted. Please let us know that you're there. Yes. Uh, commissioners, uh, my name is Francesca da Costa. And every presentation I hear, and I've heard the presentations from day one, it's like a, like a swan piercing my heart. Twelve patients have died. And at no time in your so-called needs assessment do you all mention why they died? Do you all mention why drug addicts were transferred to Laguna Honda? And we, the people of San Francisco, and some of our leaders, attorneys, will put a lot of pressure the federal government to help San Francisco. We paid this consultant who gave the presentation $5 million. But I'm asking you, the 12 patients that died, can you put a prize on their lives? How are we going to compensate them? And I understand well, skilled nurses, subacute care, why don't we keep the same thing in place? They are the only one in the entire nation that has this certification. So your commissioners, do your research. Dr. Colfax, do your research. These outsiders come here and bully us. We cannot be bullied. This matter has to be taken to the highest level. And some people have to be exposed for wrongdoing. And my name is Francisco da Costa. I serve this nation. So I know how to deal with rascals. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, can, and there was another hand up, so please uh, press star three if you'd like to make comment and you haven't received accommodation. I'm going to give it a second since folks have had trouble. Okay, now I know their hand has popped up. <clears throat> All right, thank you. I'd like to just begin by a uh, maybe a few clarifying questions and just emphasizing a few things that I think uh, uh, should be emphasized. Um, number one, uh, you had spoken about the, um, the residents who had an assessment and we found that they no longer required skilled nursing care. Uh, I believe it was 39 residents who uh, left Laguna Honda for that reason. Could you just confirm again, it sounded like everybody who was discharged was either placed in an appropriate lower level of care or to their homes, correct? 
Correct. So, um, so 39 uh, is the number that remain as of last week okay. who no longer need skilled nursing care. Okay. There were originally 42. Mm. Of those 42, uh, six had been discharged. Got it. One went home, and the mm. other four went to lower levels or basically boarding care homes, um, organized living facilities in the community. And that is the intention for everyone who no longer requires skilled nursing care who is a current resident at Laguna that Island, is, correct? That, that is correct. And so, you know, we have ma a massive team that works on that process of, tr know. because uh, remember, these are some of the most difficult individuals to place. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would even venture to say sometimes it's easier to find a skilled nursing bed than it is mm -hmm. a, a spot for some of these individuals. Uh, they often have challenging life circumstances. Um, um, uh, some may have me uh, behavioral health issues, either mental health or substance use issues. Um, many of them um, uh, may not have uh, housing, which is why many of them may actually end up either going to a board and care facility. Uh, some of the individuals on that list uh, are waiting for scattered site housing, which mm -hmm. is run through the city and are just waiting on their units to become available and then they will move at the appropriate time. And then secondly, I want to thank you for the hiring updates and I really want to underscore that um, in looking at these hiring updates and it's really great the pace at which these critical positions have been filled with it appears to be very talented candidates. Um, that these hires both align with the priorities that CMS set forth. They really placed a priority on Laguna Honda hiring these key leadership roles. Um, and they also addressed some of the past deficiencies that were identified or cited during some of the previous surveys, particularly, fire, uh, particularly the uh, uh, facilities engineering and fire life safety and the emergency preparedness position. So it, it just, I, I think it bears repeating an emphasis that not only are these higher, some of these were our new positions, they were created as the structure of Laguna Honda was changed in order to align more with high performing skilled nursing facilities. And then the hiring of these, filling of these positions was something that was really very important to CMS in our path towards recertification. Is that? That is correct. If you look at that root cause anal analysis and those 11 areas of finding, you will see one on facilities mm -hmm. infrastructure. You will see one on emergency preparedness and planning. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you point out, these recruitments very much are in line with all of the uh, expert consultants' uh, uh, observations and recommendations of what Laguna Honda needs to, in order to be, perform like a, a high performing uh, skilled nursing facility. And again, this is all part of a restructuring that began not when we got the first feedback from CMS, but immediately at the point of, of decertification, realizing that there needed to be restructuring to align with high performing skilled nursing facilities. And that work has been going on for a very long time. That is correct. That started the day after decertification in April of last year. And finally, I just want to thank you for including this photo at the end of the staff at Laguna Honda. On behalf of the commission, really want to acknowledge the hard work of the staff and our union leaders, our union partners at Laguna Honda to really embrace the change that's needed to really fully engage in the training modules and be a big and important part of our path towards recertification. So just again, on behalf of the um, commission, want to acknowledge all of the staff, our union partners um, for, for their hard work and commitment to this process as well. Thank you. Great. Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you. Uh, and I, again, thanks for your presentation. 
Uh, Mr. Pickens, I just wanted to say uh, an additional word or ha uh, have a little, uh, have you comment a little bit more on the consistent care at the bedside initiative, something we talked about a little bit more in detail at the JCC. Uh, this is uh, a, a, another program that is intended to really not only get us to the point of uh, um, sort of confidence with our recertification, but really uh, indicating a sort of a, a structural uh, change in how uh, problems can get resolved, uh, policies can be uh, um, reinforced uh, and monitoring, I think at the local and the, the unit level, which is really, really uh, important. And I know that the initiative will last only until December, 2023, but uh, I would hope that based on whatever the results are of this, hopefully the success of this initiative that we'll find a way uh, to incorporate the best parts of it uh, going forward. And uh, again, uh, looking forward to hearing more about that uh, as we continue to monitor the impact of the CC, CCBM yes. <laughs> initiative. Thank you. Sure, I, I can talk a little bit more about it. So uh, again, the CCBM initiative was born um, uh, out of some of our more recent uh, survey activity, particularly the one that led to an immediate jeopardy finding a few months ago. And what that showed us and also CMS was, again, despite all of the improvement work that has been done at Laguna over the last year, obviously there were still some uh, areas uh, that needed um, um, uh, improvement and correction quickly because the clock is running out. We're getting close to the time for recertification. And so um, we um, needed to then evaluate where we were and, and um, what um, fix we might be able to offer to CMS uh, in order to convince them. Because remember, the settlement agreement is very clear. At any point, if CMS feels Laguna is not making progress in regulatory compliance or towards recertification, they have the discretion to end the agreement and uh, um, request that we begin to transfer residents uh, and moving forward. So we had it, we, we needed to show um, that uh, we were serious about uh, making that final push towards regulatory compliance. So these coordinated care at the bedside monitors are again, director of nursing level individuals who will be assigned to each of our 13 units. They each will have a unit. They will uh, split their time across all three shifts of the, of, of the nursing unit. So some days they will work day shift, other days they will work night shift, other days they will work evening shift. They are required to meet and get to know each and every staff person assigned to that nursing unit. So that's usually somewhere between 30 to 50 staff who are assigned to a particular unit. Uh, their job is to make sure that each staff member who takes care of a resident knows the care plan, uh, can use an adult learning technique of teach back, that they can teach that care plan back to the CCBM to show that they understand it and know how to implement it. And that's particularly important in terms of um, our focus on resident safety, making sure staff are aware if you have residents who have particular issues that have, because that may have been addressed in the care plan, but unless staff are able to, unless staff have read that care plan and understand it, um, um, that may not be sufficient. 
But the role of these individuals then is to work with individual staff members and also with the charge nurses and the nurse manager of that unit to help them to, help, to bring in their 10 to 20 years of expertise as a director of nursing to say, in order to run a um, highly reliable nursing unit that delivers consistent, safe, regulatory compliant care, this is how you set up your operation. This is how you huddle with your staff. This is how you give direction. This is how you then um, hold people accountable to what they've been trained to. Because one of the things we saw over the last year, as much as we were churning out improvement effort after improvement effort and putting out um, um, uh, directives and mandates, what we saw is there was an all, there, in many cases, you could put the expectation out there, but unless you also then build in a check and balance and a validation and an accountability, then the improvements either don't happen or they don't stick. They may, they may be temporary in nature. So the goal of this program is to, number one, more quickly identify ongoing areas of noncompliance or, um, or, or safety risk and to remedy, remedy those and then to do it in a way uh, that is lasting. So the way the process works is every morning uh, there is a huddle uh, with the CCBM leads, with myself, the chief nursing officer, the Laguna Honda recertification incident commanders, and the medical director. We hear directly from the CCBMs, what were their findings from the previous day? What are issues on each and every unit that uh, if they left, if they were to go uh, unchecked, could either be a patient, a resident safety issue or a regulatory compliance issue. We have a very method, we have methodical standard work that says we have a hierarchy. What are things that have to be resolved between four hours? What has to be resolved between 24 hours? But that's the standard we've given ourselves. Anything that gets reported that gets escalated that, to that group has to be resolved timely. And so again, that was one of the things that was missing before. We would identify things. You would say, okay, you, this person go off there and fix it. And then it would go into this black hole and just disappear. So we removed all of that ambiguity, put structure to the process. And, um, we, were do, we, and the, we, we repeat that process uh, every day for these uh, CCBM escalation huddles and um, huddle resolutions. And we uh, keep, um, keep track of each every, and everything we find. And uh, it's, it's a lot of work, but you know, it's really, I'm really excited because now we're finding out about problems in real time as opposed to letting something that may fester for weeks or months or that we at leadership may have never heard about because it never got elevated to us. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. We have people on site who are seeing it and letting us know, and then we fix it. Thank you. Thank you for all of that detail. And uh, it, it sounds as if this is the makings of a deep cultural change also. Uh, and so I don't know what the, the structure will look like in the future, but hopefully the cultural uh, behavior uh, will stick with regard to that because that's really what's going to make the difference in the future. Thank you. Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, and thank you again for the explanation on your uh, CCBM. Uh, uh, each time I hear it, it makes more sense. So. <laughs> 
I, I think it was great. Um, I'm curious about two things. One, as we add these new positions and as we bring on our new uh, uh, CEO, that we we are going to have to understand the uh, relationships of all these people. So, I would imagine I would hope at our next meeting. Uh, at the commission level, we could at least see where all these people were in some sort of org chart. Certainly. Uh, yes. And, and, and I don't know where the CCBM people are, but, but it, in any case, I'll leave that to you and your new uh, CEO coming on, which uh, I guess is in about six days or so. Yes. For you, <laughs> if you're counting down. <laughs> um, the September 19th date really continues to be problematic from what we understand. Uh, even if we were to file for recertification, we know that it takes a longer period of time to have a survey and then have, if any, corrective action plans that they then come back and say yes or no. Or I mean, we've never gone through it. A, uh, a certification survey, so I'm not sure, but that's, that's what happens, right, in, in our other surveys. Uh, so, so you back up, September 19th is like 90 days from here, and a routine certification, recertification, we'd only have 90 days, so that, um, how, how do we get around the 19th date, or what is our understanding, what is your understanding, that uh, it's uh, the good intent and the progress that's being made would then lead to another uh, change in our need to, uh, because we're going to have to file apparently still a uh, uh, discharge plan. Or have we already filed the discharge? Yes, our discharge closure plan was already approved. Okay. I think the one you're referencing is the one that CMS is requiring the state put together. Oh, oh, okay. All right, so the state's putting one together, yet we're in the course of applying for recertification at some point during the summer. And then here's this 19th date of September. So what is our thinking that uh, we're going to be uh, either asking for or that it's an understanding that if we applied by that point in time, this would not happen or what? So I think that's a good question. Uh, obviously, I can't speak on behalf of CMS. Of I can only go by what they've uh, given us in writing, uh, which does give that September 19th date. Uh, it also says um, th throughout uh, that's part it's part of the settlement agreement, and the settlement agreement also says at any point CMS has the discretion to either uh, extend deadlines mm -hmm. uh, um, if they feel that there's sufficient progress. So I would hope, uh, again, our desire is to submit this summer, as we have said, uh, our desire is for CMS to give us back that 2567 within 10 days so that we can turn it around, get all the information we need to better inform our decision of what date it will be. So there are lots of moving parts, uh, and we're just trying to do the best we can to take all of that into consideration with that September 19th date, also with the uncertainty of still not having the final um, um, statement of deficiencies so that we can actually do the required improvement work uh, to inform that decision of when the application will go in. Now, the good thing is the application itself has been ready for months to go in. 
which is no easy feat. It took months to put it together with the city attorney's office and consultants. It's several hundred pages long. So that work has been done. So, you know, we, we, we front loaded this process so that we wouldn't have any um, bureaucratic impediments um, that would hinder us from the actual submission. Well, no, thank you for that explanation. And uh, I'm sure we'll be getting updates as we go along. Commissioner Green. Yes, well, thank you for the encouraging news and thank you for that information that we are really ready to send in the um, application as soon as possible. I, I had a few, a few questions and um, where are we in terms of this 10 days? Aren't we coming close to, if not slightly over that time frame? Yeah, I believe they exited June 9th. So okay. we are, yes, we're, we're right there. Right there. And do you have any concerns that the final report will have any surprises or, you know, what, what has been the history where we've gotten some preliminary information and um, it, it's reflected in the final report or are there, are you worried about any surprises in the final report? Um, at this point, I'm, I, I don't anticipate that happening. I think we had a very good, this past survey went very well with the survey team. They were very open, transparent, upfront with us as issues arose during the week of the survey, as they often do. They engaged us quickly. We responded quickly, uh, and they were very thorough in the verbal exit that they gave us. Now, obviously, they were required. They read a script that says, this is all verbal pending supervisory review. So um, uh, the, the team that was out there came from the CMS Region 9, San Francisco, Seattle. Um, and uh, their leadership was on the phone during the exit interview. So the same leadership that will be reviewing uh, and validating their on-site field team findings were part of that exit. So I would be very surprised if something appears in the written document that uh, we're not aware of. That's really good to hear. So most of what you're anticipating are refinements on uh, elements you've already been working, working on. And I guess the other question with the CCBM, and I really agree with Dr. Chow, it would be really wonderful to understand how all these moving parts work mm -hmm. together, especially how HSAG and CCBM are gonna interface, because it sounds like one is at a higher level finding random uh, items, and the other is gonna be really in the, in the neighborhoods itself. But I'm really curious in particular about sustainability. Um, because I know we've had some moments where we haven't had nurse managers, and I, I, I would be curious also to know what anticipated turnover and key staff would be, especially once you've got your very stable um, administrative staff, um, how we're planning on sustaining this, because we, we all know that, that reinforcement is so critical, and um, they'll be back, and we have phase three to deal with as well. So it, how will that all come together? Right. So great question. Um, in fact, we've coordinated with Mark. We do want to come to the next Laguna Honda JCC and present uh, uh, what our best thinking at this point in terms of a sustainability plan. So it will address um, many of the questions you just raised in terms of how do these initiatives all fit together and then how do we make sure that um, this has not been a wasted effort uh, and so that all the work that can go into a more long-lasting um, uh, organizational uh, improvement process that sets Laguna up for long-term success. And, um, and so
that we don't ever find ourselves in this position again. Well, th thank you for the hard work of everyone. As, as uh, Commissioner Bernal said, it's been a tremendous heavy lift for everyone, and we're, we're really appreciative, and we do see the progress. We're, we're really pleased when we see the reports now compared to months ago when we were just starting this journey. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Oh, Commissioner Christian. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Pickens. Good to see you. I appreciated your comments uh, regarding the need for and the active change of culture at, at Laguna Honda. And uh, I mean, at, in every circumstance uh, across the board, um, culture eats policy for lunch every day, as people say. So uh, can you, is there anything you can tell us about uh, the plans to sustain the cultural uh, changes that you are creating right now? Yes, great question. So a couple of things. Uh, one of those assistant nursing home administrator is the administrator for care experience. And under care experience, that's care experience both for our residents but also for our staff. And part of uh, that individual's work is um, to um, make sure um, we are addressing uh, staff um, satisfaction uh, with the workplace and at the same time staff accountability for uh, um, doing their jobs appropriately. Um, in addition to having uh, that position at Laguna, as we know, many of the residents at Laguna are, are, are patients throughout the health network and DPH. And so we are also establishing a uh, network level care experience uh, position that will then help bridge the transitions as residents move, say, from San Francisco General or from primary care uh, for our um, uh, residents who actually come directly from referral from their primary care physician into Laguna, that we have um, a uh, standard way um, uh, of addressing um, our staff concerns, but then also um, our resident concerns. So that assistant nursing home administrator um, will be responsible for um, the work we started under recertification for organizational change management. That includes things like um, um, the fact that uh, typically one of the findings in the root cause analysis was that Laguna had an over-reliance on um, computerized training and education, just these people sitting in front of a computer doing module training. Well, the experience has shown, has shown that didn't serve us very well. Staff were not retaining information. So we're now going to much more adult learning techniques, more, um, um, more uh, uh, on-site, hands-on training, uh, for, um, for our staff. Um, we did that initially last summer where we um, had all 1,500 staff go through a whole week-long uh, didactic uh, process. And so we'll, we will be continuing that moving forward. So that was something that uh, showed us um, that uh, needed to be part of the new culture at Laguna. No longer, it's easy to get compliance by staff to say, okay, go watch this video and you can check off you've read, you've been trained on abuse. But that doesn't really work well in terms of 
staff's ability to ask questions, to say, well, well, this is what you just heard. Tell me what you just heard, or give me an example on your nursing unit of what you might see and how you might deal with it. So that's an, that's an example of, I think, the, the, the more long-term uh, organizational change that we see happening at Laguna, and it'll be facilitated by that new nursing home administrator for, for care experience. That's just one example. Thank you. All right, um, I do understand that we had two hands that, or perhaps a few hands that came up uh, a little bit later. Apologies for any technical glitches which may be happening either on our end or on the end of folks who are calling in, uh, but we would like to make some time for those comments to be uh, heard. Yes, thanks. All right, Jaime, please um, uh, unmute the first caller. Great. Right, so, Mr. Minette um please comment on this item and then we'll go to the other items. Okay, for item six, let's take a stock of Mr. Pickham's presentation today. On slide six, he addressed this related consistent care at the bedside initiative. We learned of it in his May 14th letter to DHHS, where he claimed that Laguna Hunter would hire, quote, additional consultants at a cost of over $1 million per month to observe and advise frontline staff on every floor in every unit for each shift, end quote. He implied it would involve a new contract and a new consultant. It does neither. An additional consultant has not been hired. It's the same consultant you had since May 2022, HJFAG. It's funded by the same 7.2 million contract initially awarded to HFAG last February, which didn't mention a CTBI program for frontline staff. The scope of services for that contract was titled, quote, Laguna Honda Pre-Certification, end quote, and it listed no care at the bedside initiative. The funds are just being yanked around to spend on services not initially in the contract. Uh, it seems designed to deceive CMS. The lion's share of the scope of services had initially been for a nursing home administrator position and director of nursing positions provided by HSAG staff at a total of $1 million in billable consultant staffing hours and consultant staffing for senior quality improvement specialists and infection preventionists and a discharge transfer coaching staff at a total of $3.3 million in billable consultant staffing. Mr. Pickens just stated that those CTBI staff will not be on every shift. They will randomly appear some in day shifts, some in night shifts, and that it doesn't sound like they're going to be there for each shift. So I don't know how you're going to train frontline staff if they are only there for one of the three shifts. This is ridiculous. Thank you. 
All right, thank you. And um, uh, I will unmute you again after we take the other caller on this item and we'll go to your other item. So Jaime, please mute him and then unmute the next caller. Hi caller, please listen, um, you're there. Hi, it's Dr. Palmer, WW. Um, I'm um, comforted by the fact that you're looking at getting your ducks in a row to um, prevent evictions on September 19th. But um, I am not comforted by the focus on um, San Francisco General and the public health system as being the main and only source of residents for Laguna Honda. There's a citywide shortage of Medi-Cal nursing home beds and many um, elderly and disabled patients who need them. And if um, coordination of care only occurs for people within the public health system and not for people outside it, we're gonna have um, um, elder abuse and elder neglect uh, because people can't take care of themselves outside of a nursing home. I myself um, applied to get uh, my mother into Laguna Honda in 2017. And um, as someone who um, she had run out of money and spent down to Medi-Cal, um, uh, she needed 24 hour supervision and I could not safely take care of her at home. She had, uh, she was eligible for a nursing home. I did not pull the, I am a doctor that used to work for Laguna Honda thing. I uh, went through the regular um, thing and I was treated actually with gross insensitivity. And so was my mother. And I think um, Laguna Honda is a resource for all San Franciscans and needs to behave in that fashion. Um, and, um, uh, and also the Department of Public Health needs to work with the other providers um, of um, housing and treatment for um, elderly and disabled people um, to move people out of Laguna Honda so beds can safely and locally so beds can open up to those of us who are elderly who need the bed and want to stay in our community. Um, my other question is, um, uh, the, uh, CMS in his May 18th letter suggested a meeting to include all levels of government and the unions about how to proceed at Laguna Honda to make sure all hands were on board, I gather. Has that meeting occurred? And if not, is it planned? Thank you. All right. And now we're going to go back uh, to uh, take a call that uh, was intended for general public comment. Jaime, please unmute caller 10. And Mr. Vanetchal, let's do your general public comment. comment. Oh, my, my comment was for the meeting minutes, item two, not public comment. So I'm going to start. Okay, it's good. It was good seeing in the minutes of June 6th. Um, that Dr. Palmer, Art Persico, Norm Dagelman, and Michael Lyon all testified on that uh, DCH Behavioral Health Services Update Agenda Item presentation that recertification of Laguna Honda is jeopardized by using Laguna Honda as a destination for admissions of, quote, behaviorally complex people whose care 
cannot truly be optimized in a nursing home setting or who jeopardize themselves or the other fragile folks in the nursing home, end quote. That's an unacceptable risk. As Dr. Palmer rightly noted, quote, if this is not correct, that we can look forward to more immediate jeopardy citations and ultimately to the loss of our public nursing home, end quote. She was referring to Laguna Honda being lost. I disagree with Mr. Persico, however, that housing behavioral health patients and elderly nursing home patients in the same facility should be done at Laguna Honda. You can't safely, quote unquote, cohort them in Laguna Honda's two different patient towers because they're connected by the link building. You should abandon all plans of doing so. Build alternative facilities and keep these two patient populations separated to prevent the run-ins that you had back in 2004 where people with behavioral problems setting fires in the building and endangering elderly and demented patients who don't have much in the way of ambulatory independence. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Our next item, item number seven, is the Population Health Division updates. We'd like to welcome back Dr. Susan Phillip, Director of Population Health and San Francisco Health Officer. Welcome, Dr. Phillip. Thank you very much, commissioners, and so happy to be here um, uh, presenting on behalf of the really wonderful team that I work with at the Population Health Division. So good afternoon again, commissioners, Secretary Morowitz, uh, Director Colfax, and thank you very much, uh, Kenya, for the assistance with the slides. Next slide, please. So this slide is really to, to orient the commission uh, to where population health sits in the, in the department. And um, the next slide is really to talk about, we've just talked about where we, we are in relation to the rest of the department. And, and this slide really sets a focus for what it is that we do. Um, if I'll draw your attention, I think I've presented this before, the wheel uh, on the right with the, with the multiple uh, really nice colors for Pride Month, uh, as a coincidence, is the 10 essential functions of public health. And this is, a, um, this is a nationally recognized framework um, really laying out what should a um, highly um, integrated and successful uh, health department be able to do uh, within its community and, and for, its, for its community. And uh, I won't read out all of the 10 functions, but you see that they're grouped into three large areas of assessment, policy development, and assurance. And at the center of, of it all, in this iteration and this revised iteration of the 10 essential functions is equity. And we completely um, endorse that, um, that framework. Previously, in the first uh, iteration of this national framework, it was research at the center. But I think we can all agree in, in the, the very nice remarks uh, for Dr. Bennett's uh, transition that equity does have to be the center of everything we do. Many of these 10 functions um, uh, occur within PhD. There are some that occur in other uh, divisions um, and areas of the department as well. 
And so if we look at what the key features and the key functions of, of PhD, and, and we certainly do uh, more than this, but if we wanted to group them into, into four large categories, um, on the left, we see that we deliver core public health functions and expertise citywide. Uh, we advise on citywide public health policies. Uh, the division advances public health research and innovation as a core part of what we do. And um, the division, on behalf of the entire department, leads the effort for public health accreditation for the Department of Public Health. And I'll speak about that uh, a little bit more in just a moment. Next slide, please. So with this slide, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the, the four large groupings of what our division is, is uh, currently focused on in an ongoing way. Um, how are we supporting the work that we just talked about? And how are we thinking about making improvements in the division to carry out those really important 10 essential functions of public health, to keep equity at the center, and to support our staff? Um, these four areas are all interconnected, so I think you'll see the relationships between them. I'm going to give a, a broad overview of how we are working in these areas and how we're thinking about them, and then I will go into a little bit more detail about each one in subsequent slides. So for organizational capacity building, um, we're going to share in just a moment a relatively new organizational structure for PhD that was initially announced and released last fall. It really is intended to increase our capacity to support the current work, to develop new areas of work as it becomes necessary. For example, climate change and, and climate health is, is an area that we um, anticipate becoming increasingly important in San Francisco in our work. And also reinforce and build on our ability to learn from the lessons of COVID and incorporate some of those best learnings into our new work. Um, we also want to be able to better bring in and administer uh, grants and other resources to support the innovation and the work that we want to do here in the department um, from CDC, the California Department of Public Health, and other funders. So we are strengthening our team here. And that work is being very capably led by uh, Eduardo Cida, who is here today and um, is really one of the rising leaders in PhD. Um, so we're happy to, very happy to have him. We also know, as, as has been discussed nationally, that we have to develop and support our most valuable assets, which is our, our team and our staff. And, um, and so we want to uh, really in, uh, double down on professional development with an equity focus and have a culture that supports excellence and makes PhD a great place to work. And we'll use tools like the recent employee engagement survey to accomplish this. We had a really excellent response rate for PhD of 78%. And so we'll be able to dive in and use those responses to, to really um, fuel this work. For leadership recruitment, we have some leadership opportunities post-COVID that I will discuss. We also have some key vacancies of some very experienced leaders who stayed to serve the city during the pandemic, but are now retiring um, or moving on to other opportunities. This is a national and a statewide trend. Um, and we know that this is a great loss in terms of collective years of experience, but we are working hard to hire into these positions. And as I mentioned, we have some really promising up and coming leaders that we're very excited to be working with in PhD. 
And overall, this hiring effort um, has been led by a really amazing group. We have a PhD hiring task force that includes not only our PhD team, but also DPH HR staff as well. They've been working collaboratively and set an ambitious goal of 120 hires for PhD alone between November and uh, the end of this month. And they are on track to exceed that and actually hire 128. So they're doing an amazing, amazing job. Um, when we think about COVID task force transition, of course, it fits into capacity building and leadership recruitment. And many, many thanks to Dr. Lisa Golden and to Charles Fan, um, who's been our task force leader and has been really working with us in PhD to adjust and incorporate some of the COVID-19 response work. It's a major undertaking, as this group knows. And um, the funding and the functions have been shifting and we've had to adjust and, and, and think about really what are the core pieces that we want to retain and uh, incorporate. So we're aiming to keep and build on, on key capabilities that emerged through the pandemic, such as centering community partnerships and allowing community to lead exactly how we go about um, accomplishing, uh, making San Francisco the healthiest place on earth to um, visually represent data in compelling ways for all of our stakeholders, and thinking about having nimble response teams, for example, when there are um, outbreaks of vaccine-preventable disease. How can we do that and respond a little more quickly? And finally, public health uh, reaccreditation. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. We submitted our application for reaccreditation in March. This work is being uh, led by Priscilla Chu, and we thank her for the, the work. And um, we have until the end of September to submit all the supporting documentation, which is extensive. Um, so we'll start with the next slide and I'll walk through a, a few aspects of the areas we just talked about. So this is the revised organizational chart for the population health division, rather than um, each of the 14 to 15 branches reporting directly to the director of the division, as we previously had, it creates what we're calling groups that will be led by a deputy director for the division. Um, as of now, there are two physician positions and two non-physician positions that will be in leadership. And these um, division executive leaders will then support the work of the branches underneath them. Um, so we have uh, leaders who will be leading research, learning and development, operations, people and infrastructure or grants, our public health core services, and um, community health. Um, and could you click to the next slide, please? So currently, I am so pleased that uh, we are fortunate enough to have uh, Deputy Director Daisy Aguayo, who is serving as our Deputy Director of Operations, People, and Infrastructure. And Daisy is here with us. And um, I know she's well known to this group and has served the department for many years. And uh, we're just thrilled to have her uh, in her, her leadership position in, in PhD, um, really uh, being such a key partner to me and to everyone in the division to accomplish the, the big goals that we are setting out. Um, we have been working very hard. Our next uh, step is going to be uh, completing the selection process for the Deputy Director of Community Health, a really exciting position that again, in this new structure, elevates community um, it really to, to make it in some ways, in many ways, the center of what we do so that the other leaders and the other groups will be wrapping around uh, the community input and the community partnerships to deliver the core services, to deliver the data, and um, to, to really have the research and the innovation reflect the community's input and their needs. And I think the department has done this uh, for a while. Uh, we're making it explicit in this organizational chart. 
So, um, and then after that, uh, the next task will be to turn to hiring the physician deputy directors. There are two of those. They will also serve as deputy health officers. And um, uh, so very excited about the potential for this. And the potential for this organizational structure, again, allowing us to um, add in additional capability as we need to around climate change, around other areas that are uh, opportunities for us to grow and to additionally serve the city. And uh, this structure will better allow us to do that. Next slide, please. So in this um, slide, I really am just thinking about some of those benefits. I mentioned a few of them and uh, I've somewhat artificially, we've artificially divided it into benefits to community and to our division of, of population health, but really they're very interconnected. So again, it's so important that we're visibly elevating community in this structure and that we are aligning our work in PhD with community needs. Um, equity is going to be a huge focus for this community group and for all of our areas of work, um, following the amazing example that has been set and established for us by Dr. Bennett and uh, her team. And then in the division, creating leadership level support um, is, is incredibly important and included in that is, is succession planning and having people have an opportunity to, to step forward and to lead in those uh, ways that serves the department and the city so well. Um, expanding our capability for emergency response is, is really going to be uh, important. Having these additional leaders that can serve on key roles whenever we might have a public health emergency and being able to support the work of the branches and the teams below them to enable them to be freed up to, to do the expert work that they, uh, that they excel in. And then again, aligning equity with everything we do. I'm saying it twice because it's so important. We're thinking about it all the time as we're doing this work. Next slide, please. Okay, I'm gonna shift into another quadrant, which is uh, the task force and, and moving in the work. This is of course a, a really huge task and uh, our division was um, so involved, um, as, as you all know, in the, in the response. At one point we had 241 of our staff activated and that's uh, about 50, a little less than 50%. And this partnership between leaders in the COVID task force and in the PhD branches has been really, uh, really integral. And what we're going to be doing is really moving um, the functions and the, the staff um, over and incorporating them into our vision and our work in PhD. Again, we're gonna use the learnings from COVID to bring in new functions into PhD and maybe some new ways of thinking and sharing our work. And so we're really grateful for our collaborators, our other DPH leaders who've given input, our external partners, and then the task force staff who continue to help us with this period of integrating and learning and you know, balancing all of the, all of the changes and, and somewhat you know, the unknowns of uh, what the staffing is going to look like, what the funding is going to look like. And they've been so committed to this work and um, we're really, very pleased to be able to encourage many of them to apply for permanent positions within PhD or elsewhere in the department so we can really keep the talent that was developed and the leadership that emerged during COVID. Next slide, please. So um, again, just a little bit on public health accreditation because again, I feel like we, we hold this in the division but we do it on behalf of the entire department and on behalf of the commission. Um, and again, many thanks to Priscilla Chu who leads these efforts. So the timeline was we um, initially became accredited in, in 2017 as a public health department. Um, we were approved um, in the spring in March for reaccreditation. 
And um, we have to have all of our uh, paperwork and documentation in for that reaccreditation process at, by the end of September. And then the, the body that does and establishes accreditation for uh, public health departments, the Public Health Accreditation Board, will then follow up on those materials and, and do a virtual site visit. So um, often uh, or sometimes I get questions from staff or from others about why, why go through this process. It's, it's labor intensive. It's, it's uh, challenging to do this. Um, well, in some ways it really is, um, it really is uh, putting into, into words and into a symbol the, the work that we already value. The uh, board really values community. Uh, involvement, it values equity, it values improvement, all of these things that we're already doing as a department and you know we should we should get credit for it and we should really again make it part of our standard work to be documenting and, and, and doing all of these things and including workforce development. I think the other practical thing is that this like accreditation that we're familiar with for hospitals and other institutions is becoming just really a standard, a mark of quality for a health department. And we are also seeing that this is getting incorporated into grant and funding opportunities so that you get more points if you're an accredited health department. So it is a lot of work, it's a lot of effort, but it really does reflect the excellence that um, SFDPH um, does stand for, should stand for, and so we continue to um, be very happy to participate and, and help um, lead this work with um, collaboration from, from other people. Although it's led within a PhD, um, there, are, uh, there, there are many people that are involved with this, including Secretary Morowitz. Thank you for your in involvement in it as well. Okay, so um, next slide, please. Kenyon, next slide. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to shift a little bit where we've been talking about all of the work that we have done and will continue to do to um, really think about, about rebuilding um, PhD after COVID and rebuilding after the transition of so many of our senior leaders. Um, but as we know, public health and emergencies and infectious diseases like, don't necessarily operate on the timeline that's most convenient. So I know that, that you all um, are, are very aware because we talked so much about it and really appreciated your support and concern last summer when we were faced with this global outbreak of, of MPOX and primarily among LGBTQ uh, people and primarily gay men and other men who have sex with men in San Francisco with rapidly escalating cases in San Francisco and very limited vaccine. I think I'm saying word for word what President Bernal said just a little while ago. Um, we, uh, we know that uh, it really was the collective uh, work of the city and of the department that enabled us to respond so quickly and enable us to get to the point again, as I mentioned, that CDC modeling shows that San Francisco is estimated to have the lowest risk of large recurrence um, of, of any major city, like New York and San Francisco have the, the two best outlooks for that. And we hope that's right. And we're going to prepare as if it might not be and, and reminding people to get vaccine if they haven't, but it's, that's good news. And I, I wanna talk a little bit about uh, the amazing work of all the teams that came together. I'm gonna speak a little bit about PhD, but also to show you how it's collaboration and partnership across the department and across the city. Um, while we were um, really trying to, um, let's see here. Is there a slide before this, Kenya? Could you check if there's a slide that got skipped? 
Are you able to go back one, please, Kenya? Yes, I'll go back. Um, there was a, a slide that I skipped. Oh, okay, thank you, thank you. All right, I'll, I'll go ahead and read and, and uh, while, we're, while we're going back, and I think that that's just fine. Um, and then you all remember that uh, we in San Francisco became the first US jurisdiction to announce that we would declare a public health emergency and really have that signify how intensely we were going to respond and how much we wanted to um, do everything we could to help keep people safe. And um, while there are many, many challenges uh, for the public and for our teams, we built on lessons and partnerships from COVID-19 and really leveraged that, rapidly creating a public dashboard. Uh, within that, we saw uh, disproportionate cases among Latinx uh, persons. And again, Dr. Bennett was uh, really instrumental in saying, you know, we, we don't need to wait to see this. We anticipate that there is going to be some disparities and let's look at the data as soon as it comes in and respond quickly. Um, we have so many community partner organizations with expertise in uh, LGBTQ health and sexual health um, that centered non-stigmatizing language and a rights-based approach. And then we were able to also incorporate MPOC's work into community-based infrastructure, including into organizations that hadn't primarily worked in sexual health, but really knew how to reach Latinx populations and others who could benefit and who really uh, joined very quickly understanding the data and, and doing everything that we could to, to out, reach out. Next slide, please. So um, I, oh, one, one back, please. Great, thank you. So the San Francisco City Clinic team, which is within Population Health, is our expert sexual health clinic here uh, at DPH and in the city, responded so quickly uh, to be able to test and vaccinate and treat people with MPOX. 14% of total MPOX cases in San Francisco were diagnosed at City Clinic, and they were the largest provider of MPOX treatment uh, with uh, tecoviramat in the city. And it was quite complex to give treatment. It required extensive paperwork, was, was very time consuming. It seemed to be out of the reach of many, uh, many uh, providers because it was so out of the ordinary for what the usual patient flow would be. And City Clinic really stepped up and was able to see people regardless of what their uh, uh, usual source of health care was. And we, we, we need to plan for that um, into the future. We need to plan for ways to be able to respond quickly. Um, speaking of responding quickly, the, the DET clinic, as we uh, talked about uh, at um, Zuckerberg San Francisco General and, and President Bernal spoke about, they were the only large volume clinic that was a walk-in site um, uh, throughout uh, the, the pandemic, enabling anyone to walk in and get vaccine. And they administered over 25,000 vaccines. So there were challenges. We know that people were frustrated, but that team did an amazing, amazing job. Very quickly, we came together and were able to do that. I also really want to shout out um, something that happened with us that didn't happen in, in uh, many other counties where I have colleagues, which is that our health system partners, again, just as they did in COVID, stepped forward. And particularly UCSF and Kaiser were willing to not only have vaccination clinics, but to see people that were not their patients uh, within those clinics with the goal of, of stopping uh, the outbreak as quickly as possible. And it's extraordinary to have those partners. And again, it is, a, it is an outgrowth of what we were able to do together in COVID-19 with our mass vaccination clinics. And we want that to be our culture in San Francisco and we want that to continue. 
So we as a city have been able to celebrate 50,000 doses of vaccine given, which is, which is remarkable. We wanna make sure that anyone who hasn't yet gotten their vaccine knows that it's available to them. It's much more available now than it was um, last summer, of course. And so there are multiple routes that people can get vaccinated, including through their usual source of sexual health care. And it was a really uh, wonderful to be given an opportunity by President Bernal to remind everyone that it's not too late. Uh, we have a, a very um, long and fun summer season ahead of us, and we want to make sure that people have access to that vaccine if they haven't gotten their two doses. Next slide. So this is my, my, my final slide to say, again, this amazing team that I work with, they're so committed to making San Francisco the healthiest place on earth. They're always looking for opportunities to innovate and collaborate. And um, you have just one example here on this flyer, um, it, incredibly important and very timely example of our uh, partnership with our colleagues in behavioral health. Uh, 25 Van Ness, where many of us uh, PhD um, staff are located, is now the first DPH non-clinical building to stock naloxone um, in the restrooms um, of the areas where the public uh, may be present. And, um, and that, so it can be used by visitors or staff as needed. Um, and it was really a group of leaders from behavioral health, from our CHEP branch, from PhD operations and others that made a multidisciplinary committee to, to really make this happen. And I'm so proud again to be um, associated with, with a team that thinks this way, big picture, thinks in innovation, and really, really did what they could to make this life-saving intervention as available as it could be in our building. Um, and we just had a staff training this morning, which is what the flyer was. So um, again, it's, it's really remarkable. It's a privilege to serve alongside uh, this team at PhD. I think you're going to continue to hear really amazing things that the team is doing. And uh, we gave you some examples, I think, in a handout that just sort of touches the surface. And we'll make sure to keep uh, bringing things you know, to your attention. I think they'll be of great interest um, to the commission and really appreciate your work and your support to date. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Philip. We're all very proud of the work of the Public Health Division. Thanks for these updates. Uh, Secretary Moritz, do we have public comment? We do. And let's start with those folks who I've given accommodation to. So please lower your hand if you've not personally gotten accommodation from me and given a uh, two-letter code. Uh, Jaime, let's start with a caller 10, because I know that person has received accommodation. OK, Mr. Morwood, Fitzpatrick, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. OK. This comment was the second one that I missed, and President Bernal skipped Mr. Over. Mr. Meshall, this, co this comment period is for the PhD update. It's, it's what, what about current. I, I don't want to, Mr. Meshall, do you have a comment for this item? I do, and my comment is, why aren't you taking both of the two comments that I had called in and you didn't take, you said you would take both of them, and then Commissioner Bernal only let me give one of them. I want three minutes to give my other comment. Mr. Monetcha, you had a comment both on the Laguna Honda item and in general public comment for which each person is allowed one comment. We can move on. No, no, no. Hmm. You've got two minutes, Mr. Monetcha. Keep going. Use this time okay. wisely. This was on the director's report. I did not comment on please, public please comment. Please mute him, Jaime. Hi, uh, please mute him. Okay, let's go to the other um, comment, please. 
Um, Caller, you're unmuted. Hi, Princess, Palmer. you're there. Hi, it's Dr. Palmer. Can you hear me? Yes, please begin. Yeah, I'm just, um, the Great Panthers just had a forum about um, houseless seniors and the lack of uh, medical services for houseless seniors uh, who are medically fragile in navigation centers and shelters and on the street. And uh, the other uh, thing that came up is there's a lack of data about what happens to houseless seniors and also that houseless seniors are disproportionately um, African-American or black. And um, so I see, um, you know, a lot of different things in the population health division highlights, but are um, we focusing on um, medical services um, uh, to this population and, um, and wrap, you know, decent wraparound services uh, to, um, keep them from uh, getting worse. Um, thank you. Those are the only hands, commissioners. All right, thank commissioners, you. comments or questions for Dr. Phillip? Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you and thank you, Dr. Phillip, for your presentation. Uh, I know we haven't had a, a sense of sort of the, the whole of what's been going on with uh, the public health uh, division, given all the other things that have occupied <laughs> Uh, our time, although we know that uh, uh, it's because of the division that you head up that we were so successful both in the pandemic and with the uh, recent emergency with uh, MPOX, uh, along with all the other uh, issues that, uh, that uh, this division is responsible for. I'm glad to uh, see uh, the response, uh, the structural response to the information and the data and the experience that you've uh, had over the last several years uh, incorporating into sort of the new ideas about how to respond better to the community. Um, I had a question though about the reaccreditation process and I'm really glad to know that we're we're in the throes of it and that uh, we think it's as important as it as it as it truly is. Um, are there uh, any uh, components within the accreditation uh, uh, sphere uh, of um, documentation and uh, and the application that you are particularly concerned about or particularly happy about and confident about that we should be aware of because otherwise it just becomes this sort of you know amorphous process that we're being informed about but don't really know whether you know the and ha as important as it is but so a little bit of flavor and detail would be appreciated yes sure and and that that likely would be worth um giving you a little bit more uh detail as we get further into to digging with this part of what we are aiming to do is is uh have a consultant help um who has work has served on the board and and knows this work and, and be able to really um highlight where our challenges would be uh, one thing is that our challenges may be different than they were in 2017, again, because we've had a lot of transition and we are trying to put into place new, uh, new practices. I will say that in most areas we um, are, are, are developed, we, we have developed um, at least beyond a rudimentary phase. And what we have to do, though, is 
find the ability post-pandemic to really dig in uh, to the improvement work, uh, which is a key component across all of our areas of work, having a, a core uh, a performance improvement team that's going to be in Daisy's group mm -hmm. um, to help us do that because we haven't been able to do that with all the scrambling that we've been doing. So I think we're gonna have to go back to basics and I'm certainly happy to come back or to um, send a message to the commissioners if there are areas that particularly seem to be doing well or, or areas where we're having challenges. Um, but so far, it seems like we're we're largely on track. Uh, we just know that we need to sort of up our, our game and, and continue to improve improve things. I am very um, feeling very positive about all the work about workforce development and supporting staff. And again, uh, Daisy and uh, her team have been really instrumental in that. And so has uh, Dr. Jonathan Fuchs and uh, Berta Hernandez and their team at the Center for Learning and Innovation and really thinking about how we um, how we utilize uh, our ability to engage our staff and decrease turnover and um, really try to develop our staff with an equity mindset of allowing really promising um, people to have opportunities for leadership. So we're, we're thinking about all of that and we certainly could always improve. Um, but those are also areas that are reflected in the reaccreditation. So certainly happy to come back with some areas that we're going to need to pay more attention to because I and think that, that's that important. That would definitely be appreciated Great. and really glad to hear about all the hiring that's going on at the pace at which it is going because I, I did express an ex, uh, a concern last, uh, last meeting about uh, making sure that because San Francisco is such a difficult place to reside for a number of reasons that we are not going to be shortchanged with regard to the type of resources, particularly human resources that we need in order to be able to realize all the ambition that we have uh, with these great programs uh, that we're both continuing uh, reimagining uh, as well as re uh, reestablishing. So, great. Commissioner Chow. Yes, and, and thank you for uh, the update on the public health reaccreditation. Uh, I recall when we discussed that this department should get accreditation, and we were very proud that that actually happened as uh, one of the earlier uh, city departments, I believe, uh, that had it. Um, and, and so I think uh, if, if you are having challenges in the accreditation process, and I remember when we first went through it, then um, I, I would think anything that we can help do would be, um, and, and I think, uh, um, I, I, I forget, but I think board members at one time also were interviewed or had to be part of the, at that time, on-site visit. So it sounds like it's virtual now, is that right? I believe so. I, I, I have to say, I honestly don't know if that's because of a change post-pandemic or because it's reaccreditation rather than the initial accreditation, but happy to look into that and I can, but, that answer. But, but uh, I, I'm, I'm sure, as uh, Commissioner Guillermo said, that we're all uh, very interested in making sure, as you were pointing out, that that shows that we're at a level of activity that is um, like in hospital accreditation, uh, the uh, the best that we can do. So, appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm looking and wondering with the uh, um, under, understanding how large the uh, PhD is. And with uh, the extra functions that you're having as a health officer also, uh, that you're asking for uh, two physician deputy health officers. Um, each of these uh, areas have had uh, physician leadership, at least on the research side. And uh, so, so 
how, how is it then, or do these people lose a certain amount of authority, or, uh, or is this added support for them, or how, how does this enhance what everyone's been doing, which has been really phenomenal? Yes, thank you, this. Commissioner Chow, for the opportunity to, to really state very clearly that um, we are not going to be able to replace or substitute the work of our experts at these levels, at the branch level, and they're the best in their field. So these leaders are uh, not going to be uh, necessarily guiding their work or um, or really even um, you know determining their work, but they, they are there to support. You said it exactly correctly. They're there to try to remove obstacles, to look for connections, either within the division, within the department, um, outside of the department, and help facilitate that. So it really is meant to um, allow the the branch leaders and our subject matter experts to sort of work at the top of their of their game. And, uh, and so that's the goal is to, to try and, and provide a level of support for that work. And uh, to also, as I was saying, I think it's so important like, to make sure that there are deputy health officers in place. Um, and we have always had those before. Uh, I was one of them. So again, we wanna make sure there's great succession planning that people have opportunities to um, come and, and learn from the commission, to learn from each other. And, um, and that we also have a, a pathway for people who are interested in uh, being a uh, public health director, being a population health director, a health officer, to have pathways to, to really learn uh, what, that, what that is like. So I think there are multiple benefits in, in having this leadership structure. And again, if we said, you know, we want to realign, we want to think about a new way of making a new branch, it was really difficult in the old structure to think about how to add yet something else. Uh, but here we have more flexibility because the span of control for each of our leaders is going to be much more reasonable. Do you have an idea of time frame in terms of filling these positions? We're, well, we, uh, we, we're, we're very glad that Daisy's there. We've got one down out of those four. Um, we're, we're very close um, to finalizing and being able to announce our uh, community health uh, director position, which is exciting. And, um, and then next, I turn my attention to the to the, um, the physician leaders, the, the deputy directors and deputy health officers. I'm the rate limiting step because I'm hiring all these positions. I see, okay. <laughs> well, with all your functions, I'm, I'm hoping you'll find time to It's a priority. deputies yes. to help you. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I've also I've been so grateful to have Daisy's help. And so I can't imagine even having three more people as, as good as her. Maybe that's too much to ask. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, Dr. Phillip, before I, before I call on uh, Director Colfax, I think it's worth just repeating that San Francisco went from having one of the most concerning MPOX outbreaks in the nation last year to being designated by the CDC as being at the lowest risk of a large recurrence. And that's really a testament to the work of the department and to, to, to your division as well, So, and to the great people at the general and our community partners. So thank you again for that. Um, now that we are not in a declared health emergency, we have the opportunity to go back to an issue that's been of great concern to the commission and to myself as well. Um, even looking at the progress that you're making in hiring within the division, there's still about a 30% vacancy of positions. And um, I know that we've talked about the, the progress in getting these positions filled and that's great, but what is the impact of those empty positions particularly on the work of the division and what might be left on the table and also on the staff that's there and how, how far they're being stretched or how thin they're being stretched in their own work. 
Um, it, it is really challenging. It, it's very challenging to sometimes uh, do more than uh, sort of keep keep the lights on. But I will say that our team, again, is very committed and are looking for ways to innovate um, as, as they can, uh, as you saw from our, our naloxone innovation at, mm. at 25N Nest. Yeah. So they have the, we have the mindset, and we want to enable them by having there be enough other team members mm -hmm. to help them do that and we we have again key vacancies as well at the branch level as well as these deputy positions so we really are focused on on supporting the team to enable them to do the work that they are able to do and that they're primed and want to do uh, in terms of, of innovating in in health it's um it's promising in that again with this uh, task force that's led by daisy and, and and the team that daisy works with they really uh, have made progress. So we're um, at uh, the, the, the form three or higher level on all of those positions that, that are listed there. So things are moving. It's just uh, everything, of course, takes time. And we'd, we'd love to be able to just fill them instantly. But I, I'm very um, heartened by the progress. I think, I think we're uh, turning a corner. Great. I will knock wood and say that. And I think that that's, that's very hopeful. And again, retaining people by working on experience and development and, and all of that is just as important because again, takes a long time to hire, people can decide to go get another opportunity very quickly as we know and we wanna, st we wanna stop that. We want PhDB to, to be the best place for people to work in public health. Yes, of course, we want to ensure that your team has all the support and the colleagues that they need to do the excellent work. So thank you for letting us know about the progress and I think we'll wanna hear more about it as, as the time goes on to, to make sure that it's continuing at pace. Dr. Colfax. Thank you, President Bernal. I just want to add my thanks and gratitude to Dr. Phillip for her work. As has been pointed out, she not only directs PhD, she's also the city's health officer, which has um, been a very active role over these past uh, several years. And also just to remind the commission that Dr. Phillip has been in this position for a relatively short time and has done so much um, in terms of this restructuring. And PhD has always been a fantastic division. I think you know from the research, the innovation, uh, the community work that's done there. Um, it's been uh, really, it's always it's always done so so well and has really been a leader that's looked to across the nation for models of, of, of uh, care and prevention. What Dr. Phillip is, or just to highlight, is bringing a, uh, a focus on developing more structure and systems and uh, providing uh, clarity through those structures and systems in terms of uh, holding uh, the work accountable um, and focusing on outcomes that, is, that have a shared commitment to, to the team's accomplishing. So just wanna thank her and her team for um, bringing this work forward in, in, in a context of doing all the work that, that continues and also building up um, and, and fortifying the, the PhD leadership and, and across at every level of, of, of the division. Thank you. And thanks, Dr. Colfax, for your support in doing that work. Great. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, Dr. Phillip. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to move on to our next item, which is Community and Public Health Committee update. I believe, Commissioner Christian, are you providing that update today? I am with the amazing assistance of Dr. Chow, I'm sure. Of course. Okay. <laughs> I hope. So we had a, a really wonderful presentation today, uh, the uh, tuberculosis program update. We received this last year, and uh, we are hoping, with the, along with the presenters, that this will become an annual presentation because it's so um, useful and interesting and necessary. Um, so first of all, San Francisco has a comparatively and relatively high incident of active cases. 
Uh, it is three to four times the national rate. It's also much higher than in the rest of California. Understanding the reasons for this is uh, kind of complicated by the fact that we are both a city and a county, whereas other places get counted with the city versus the county. Not really sure um, how that uh, how that all plays out, but uh, you know we are an urban core, and uh, we are higher than Los Angeles uh, as well as New York, again, uh, and higher than uh, Imperial County as well. So it's. Um, interesting and concerning, but there also may be reasons for that that are not concerning. So if you, we all received the slides, and if you later uh, refer back to slide two, um, it notes that um, active tuberculosis cases uh, have um, had a marked decrease uh, in, tw in 2020. So from 2013 to 2019, uh, the over 100 cases in most years. Uh, 2022, the marked decrease, uh, the total was um, uh, well, so earlier it was uh, the total cases were around 745 um, and then in 20 to 22 it was uh, about 190. The reasons for this are multifactorial. COVID perhaps uh, and the uh, small number of cases that were detected during that time when people were not seeing medical providers. And also the fact that new immigrants have proportionately small uh, numbers of cases of tuberculosis. And so while um, the immigration is has been going up, uh, the cases have not been uh, going up because the immigrants are not responsible uh, in that sense for uh, the, most of the cases. Um, according to the presenters, most people, perhaps 90%, uh, had latent tuberculosis. And so um, when they came to the country, perhaps it was um, latent and then became evident later, active later. Um, It's easy to wonder whether the decrease in uh, immigration may have led to a decrease, but again, uh, that's probably not the case because the rate among re recent immigrants is low. Uh, the rapid molecular testing may be leading to greater discovery of incidents. Here in San Francisco, it is now incorporated much more widely and it has been around for uh, since 2010 which makes it easier to um, use this test, which is more sensitive. Also, the um, case complexity, an interesting thing that they let us know is that the case complexity has increased uh, more medically complex cases. The median age for people who are testing um, uh, with tuberculosis is greater than 60, uh, and that's been true since 2019. And again, the rapid diagnosis has been an important factor in this coming to light. Uh, the presentation also talked about the uh, racial and ethnic disparities in active TB incidence cases. Um, and that's around slide number five. And with this slide, we again encounter the uh, question of how we aggregate or disaggregate Asians and Pacific Islanders. Uh, people who identify as Asian have the uh, highest rate 
of uh, TB cases. Pacific Islanders, not so much, <laughs> much, much lower. And uh, so while it's um, the, the convention is to group Asian and Pacific Islander, we noted with uh, the presenters that it might be helpful to uh, once again use our drop, you know, our uh, strategy of dropping a footnote to say, explain that uh, while the, this group, these groups are aggregated, there are very few numbers among Pacific Islanders. Also, perhaps dropping a footnote to note that um, we are tracking as best we can uh, statistics in the Native American community. Um, and to, because of the low numbers, the percentages are not statistically uh, significant, apparently, but no, no, the low numbers of population. But to let people know that we are not ignoring the population and uh, explain why the numbers are what they are. And the next slide notes that uh, the highest countries of uh, TB cases between 2018 and 22 2022, China had 37%. Uh, people born in the Philippines had 13.1%, and Vietnam had 8.5%. And it drops um, from there. So those are the, the highest places of origin in Asia. Again, Pacific Islanders are, are not represented here because the numbers are not there. Um, Asian people are apparently uh, greater, uh, 11 time, greater than 11 times, 11 times greater to uh, likely be testing positive for tuberculosis than people who identify as white or who identified as white. And um, it's four to six times greater than in the African-American, black, and Latin community uh, than it is in the people, uh, community of people who are identified as white. Here in San Francisco, the incidents by neighborhood uh, concentrated in Chinatown and south of Market, uh, significantly uh, higher in those areas where there's a large uh, Asian population. And 86% um, of the cases of uh, tuberculosis are due to reactivation of latent TB infection. Um, which can live in the body for many years. And this is, uh, it's focused on here uh, by uh, our presenters because it is so preventable. Uh, the uh, pres presenters talked about the approach to TB prevention, working with health providers to provide preventative treatment, working with community partners to uh, provide wellness education and linkage to care for people. Uh, in the, looking in the congregate care and residential settings to promote pre preventative therapy wherever latent um, tuberculosis is diagnosed in staff or residents, working with health systems to uh, increase and optimize workflows for risk assessment, testing, and treatment for uh, tuberculosis and latent tuberculosis, and focusing on prevention and control to assure prompt evaluation and preventative therapy for those with uh, LTBI. And um, then we went on to hear more about the Newcomers Health Program, noting that coincidentally today, June 20th, is World Refugee Day. And this uh, Newcomers Health Program uh, is an amazing program, uh, as you all probably know. Um, 
it, part of it, part of what it does is to provide um, refugee health assessment program, supporting the health and well-being of refugees, asylees, people who are uh, seeking and being have been granted asylum, humanitarian parolees. Uh, at this point in time, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, survivors of trafficking, and um, as I said, asylum seekers in partnership with the TB Clinic and the Family Health Center at ZFG, ZSFG. Um, again, the uh, areas um, that are providing the changing populations from which are uh, significant from a TB standpoint, Ukraine, Guatemala, Afghanistan, and um, Honduras. Um, from a, a TB standpoint, uh, being funded to protect refugees and their health is what uh, they do and what they do well. Refugees receive overseas, uh, overseas uh, health screening, asylees, humanitarian parole, parolees. Uh, there is no overseas screening for TB conducted prior to US arrival. So that's very important to uh, the efforts that uh, these uh, entities are making to reach the asylees and the people who are uh, gain humanitarian parole. And the partnership between the TB clinic and the newcomers uh, health program is uh, significant and amazing. And it quickly screens humanitarian parolees from various countries for TB and refers for additional health services. The outreach they do is tailored specifically to each of those communities. And uh, they are being very, uh, from my perspective, very innovative and diligent about that outreach. Uh, talking about Ukraine, uh, because of uh, the high number of people who are coming, uh, fourth highest incidence of TB in Europe, fifth highest incidence of drug-resistant TB worldwide. And that is likely due to the fact that the care infrastructure there is still based on post-Soviet and Eastern Bloc healthcare systems. Um, and. Uh, the war in 2022 disrupted any recent infrastructure gains that had been made. And so building on the parolee uh, TB screening program, in November 2022, uh, USCIS implemented a humanitarian parole for Venezuelans. And then in 2023, Nicaraguans, Cubans, and Haitians. And uh, the SFDPH TB clinic is also screening these populations with uh, both the IGRA and the chest X-ray, as well as attestation. And the use of the chest X-ray seems to be uh, a very important and significant way to increase the numbers of people with, um, uh, as I understand it, perhaps I'm wrong, Dr. Chow, with latent um, uh, TB. So um, that is what I've got. And Dr. Chow uh, had some other thoughts, I believe, during our presentation. Um, I, I just wanted to clarify and uh, also uh, indicate that we were very pleased that for the, for, uh, the years 2013 to 2019, there were, uh, almost, there were over 100 cases uh, on each of those years, uh, almost. Uh, some of them were as high as 118. Uh, and per 100,000 here in the city. And in the last three years, 
granted some of this was during the pandemic, uh, they actually only had a total of 190 cases, which is significantly lower. Uh, the question then did come up, well, is this because less people were coming in? But they demonstrated on one of the slides that really the number of cases being found on, on, on people of uh, foreign origin was really still quite small. And that most of these cases are really uh, also, as uh, Commissioner uh, noted, uh, uh, latent uh, tuberculosis. So, so uh, and, and if you follow that trend, it shows that in the US and in California, there was not really uh, a difference in that trend. Our trend went down. Uh, the national trend stayed at about, uh, um, yeah, 3.3 to 2. And, and the other interesting uh, uh, figures were that uh, of Chinese origin was 37% of the cases as they had counted up in those years. And, uh, uh, and then it was noted that uh, uh, it's uh, interesting because if the US is about two and China actually is about 55, this is sort of just right in the middle. But uh, most significantly, these were latent. And so uh, I, I had discussed that the big effort continues to be trying to uh, inform providers particularly of the importance of screening latent within their uh, medical groups. They described a number of, of uh, outreaches to a lot of our clinics, but I, I thought that uh, it was really important that they still try to reach the private providers because so much of the care for the Asian population is still given within private, private practices. So. Um, we had, uh, or I had offered that we'll try to outreach uh, or give them contacts to outreach uh, to, there's really only about three or four large provider uh, practice uh, pre uh, group, uh, I should say, medical groups that are not part of the large systems that uh, they could then outreach to and see if we can even bring this down further. But uh, it really is amazing that in these years uh, they had done that. They also, because one of the issues we had was direct observation, which required everybody to go down to general. Uh, now, in fact, and this was really interesting, uh, they don't need to do that. In fact, there are three different ways of really doing uh, the observation. One is actually going to the homes of many of these who are free or elderly, so, so that's really great. Another was an app, wasn't it? Yes. And a third was a video uh, review, uh, you know, sort of similar to what you did with COVID-19 to get it certified. So um, I personally was very pleased that there was really outreach in ways that uh, we have now found it more convenient to our um, uh, residents to uh, be able to do the uh, treatment that was necessary. So it was really a very positive report and I was uh, extremely pleased after all these years to see the uh, improvement in our tuberculosis rates and we're hoping that this will continue. And the innovation that was evident uh, was amazing, just like Dr. Uh, Chow said. So now there's an app, there's the video surveillance that came to light during COVID probably and the home visits also and uh, the work that people are doing, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis to expand the access to uh, surveillance and treatment is uh, really admirable. Great. Uh, any public comment? <laughs> uh, yes, there's several hands. Um, if 
Those who have received accommodation, please leave your hand raised, and those who have not, please take your hand down. I may let's start with caller 12. Caller, you're going to get it, please. Uh, in November, some world leaders will be coming to San Francisco. And um, I've uh, listened to the presentation, and I'm sure you are aware that we have many people dying from the drug fentanyl and other drugs. Francisco da Costa, this is uh, this item is about the Community and Public Health Committee. Please, uh, the topic, your comments have to speak to the topic. I am speaking to the topic. So we have a tendency. The, the presentation for today was particularly on the tuberculosis report. I heard about it too. So uh, when the bodies go to the morgue, do we ever get a uh, uh, the fentanyl cases that go to the morgue. Uh, if we ask uh, how many people and the various categories that go to the morgue, they are not given the information because they say there's a California, California state law that prohibits it. But I'm please meet this person. About, uh, tuberculosis all right, so we'll go to um, caller 10. And Mr. Manetchal, this, uh, this item is the Community and Public Health Committee report back. It was a TV presentation. I'm gonna file a sunshine complaint if I don't get that other three minutes, Mr. Morowitz. And please, Mr. Mute, Mr. Mr. please mute, Jaime. Okay, pleasant co public comment today. But that's all. Commissioners, any comments or questions? All right, moving on to the next item, which is the consent calendar for action. Uh, Commissioner Guillermo, please take it away. Okay, thank you. Uh, you have before you uh, a recommendation uh, by the Laguna Honda uh, JCC to approve the policies, uh, see the number, uh, 20 policies that are presented uh, for your approval, uh, and I would request a, do I make the motion? Uh, actually, we would get a motion. Yes, yes, you can make the motion. Uh, motion to approve. Second. All right. Any public comment on this item? Yes, we do. I may please unmute caller 10. And a reminder that this item is the consent calendar with a number of policy items related to Laguna Honda. Okay, well, you've got three minutes, Manisha. Mr. Bernal, thank you so much for your kind reminder of what this agenda item is. It's troubling seeing this policy and procedure consent calendar update that nursing policy Beers and Dog 1.0, quote, restorative nursing care, end quote, is being realized to quote, remove the therapy aids as they will no longer be part of the restorative program, end quote. In addition, the track changes to revision marks for this particular policy shows the restorative nursing program is being changed in other detrimental ways. The action plan deliverables 
for the restorative nursing program said, a, said that a quote-unquote gap analysis would be completed by January 25th and a quote-unquote scope of services program document would be completed by February 8th. Here it is, June. Why is this restorative nursing policy being cha changed again so suddenly? Have the restorative therapy aids been returned to Laguna Honda's Rehab Services Department for supervision? As you recall, the restorative aids were moved from rehab to nursing wrongly in 2014 by Jennifer Carton Wade under her leadership. Why hasn't Laguna Honda updated this health commission on the rehab services department's quote, restorative care level one, end quote, program? Is that program still functioning to prevent functional decline of Laguna Honda's frail residents? I would remind you, Commissioner Bernal and Mr. Morowitz, that by the time Mr. Morowitz comes back from vacation, I will have a Sunshine complaint on his desk and at the Sunshine Task Force unless she let me speak today on, on audio tape for the agenda item I had my hand raised for, director's report, agenda item five. If you give me that three minutes, you can avoid wasting your time handling a Sunshine complaint. Sir, and sir. entirely within your right. We can move on. Okay, mute, please. That was the only caller. All right. Uh, commissioners, any comments or questions? If not, we can move to a vote. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Okay, we'll move on to our next item, which is a joint conference committee and other committee reports. Back to Commissioner Guillermo, chair of the Laguna Honda Hospital Joint Conference Committee. Thank you, President Bernal, uh, and uh, this will be short because uh, most of the agenda items have been uh, reviewed and presented on uh, here today. Uh, the executive team report, which is essentially what Mr. Pickens provided for us today. Uh, the, uh, we reviewed the regulatory affairs report, and uh, you did approve the recommended uh, Laguna Honda hospital policies. Uh, as presented, and then we went into closed session where we reviewed the um, credentialing and the PIPS report for the months um, presented. And that is the total of the meeting. All right, thank you, Commissioner Guillermo. Do we have any public comment? Oh, we do. Oh, please unmute. Um, caller 10, please, uh, hi me. Okay, we've got three minutes, Mr. Manetchaw, on this thank topic. Thank you. I get it. Community members who observed the JCC meeting on June 13th are alarmed that at the rate things, at the rate recertification things are progressing, there isn't enough time for enough improvements to avoid Laguna Honda's closure and resumption of mandatory discharges and evictions of all residents on September 19th. It was painfully obvious during um, Mr. Peckham's presentation on the 13th 
when he painted an overly optimistic picture of the progress towards committing a recertification application, perhaps in July. The community is afraid more immediate jeopardy citations will occur. This commission knows San Francisco has a severe shortage of skilled nursing beds and cannot afford to lose Laguna Honda, whether losing 120 or all 780 beds. The commissioners asked on April 4th that it be presented an update on the Moss Adams contract. No update has been presented in May or June and should have been presented today. That the Moss Adams contract is for support of the flow of information within Laguna Honda's recertification, quote unquote, internet command structure and within SFHN is shocking. Again, you'll be looking at a sunshine complaint because you promised me I could speak on that third item and now Mr. Bernal is being ob obdurate, obdurate, obdurate. I mean, okay, that's the only public comment. All right, any comments or questions from commissioners? None. Seeing none, we'll move on to other business. Is there any other business? Seeing none, we can move on to the next item, which is adjournment. So moved. So moved. I see no hands, by the way, on the other business. What's that? I see no uh, hands for public comment on other business. All right. All those in favor of adjournment, say aye. Aye. Opposed? We are adjourned. Thank you. Okay. And just to note that our next meeting is not until July 18th because of the July 4th holiday, which falls on a Tuesday. So we will see you all in just under a month's time. Thank you. Thank you.